morning, church. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We've spent the last three weeks uh, looking at a series called Embrace the Vision. I, I've gotten, I probably got more feedback from that series uh, than I have any uh, message uh, series that I've done since I've been here, which has been super encouraging. And it just uh, gives me the impression that so many of us are, are ready to move forward, focused uh, fresh on the vision and on the mission that Christ has given His church. Uh, which, to put quite simply, and we laid it out over the last three weeks, is to grow as disciples and to go and to make biblical disciples. And as we move forward, to lay aside any weight along the way that would distract us from that. Uh, because we recognize along the way that things can get in the way of that, right? You try to be a disciple of Christ, you try to be a church uh, full of believers that are seeking to move forward and staying focused on the mission that Christ has called us to, we're going to face opposition. Uh, there's going to be hurdles. There's going to be trials, uh, different kinds along the way, uh, seasons of discouragement. You're going to experience hostility from a lost world. You're going, to, you're going to experience temptation in here along the way to steer off course. To, as I said a few weeks ago, the temptation to make things that aren't main things main things, which takes our focus off the main thing, which is making disciples. All right, the temptation to, for churches that are seeking to be gospel-centered uh, along the way in a culture that opposes that, that message and the exclusivity of it, uh, the temptation along the way to compromise, to water down the gospel. So the question as we come out of this series, on this vision series called Embrace the Vision, is how do we stay the course? How as we move forward do we embrace that vision and finish the race faithfully? I want to ask it to you like this because I want to make you think this morning. How do we leave behind a healthy church and a ministry that outlives us? A ministry that outlives us. How do we make an impact as a vibrant, life-saving, disciple-making station that is here long after all of us are gone? That's the way we need to think. How do we do that, especially in a culture, in a world where things can so often get difficult? We're in a world that relentlessly opposes what we're trying to do. And with a flesh in us that relentlessly tries to distract us from the mission. It can feel discouraging at times. Uh, there are times where you can even be tempted to lose Hope, but what I want to remind you of this morning is that if you feel that way, and we all feel that way at different times, we're not the first group of believers to ever feel that way. This is why we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, looking at seven real churches in the first century who are working through a lot of those same feelings, tempted in a lot of the same ways that we are, churches that were facing fierce persecution from the world around them because of what they stood for. Churches that are filled with people who were uh, falling to worldly temptation, compromising. Some just needing encouragement, feeling, uh, you know, feelings of weariness. Some on the verge of losing hope. And with these churches in the first century who were experiencing all of these things, what did God give them? What were they given to help them to keep on keeping on the revelation of John? A letter that has this overarching message. You know, we, a lot of people, we like to discuss Revelation and kind of discuss all the meanings and the different symbolism within it. And uh, a lot of people kind of walk away different times with different things and different views and different opinions. But let me give you the overarching message of Revelation. This is what you should walk away every time you study Revelation with. Here is the overarching message. This is why it was delivered to those churches in the first century and why it continues to be uh, here for us to dive into and to apply to our lives. Here's the overarching message of Revelation to the church. Don't give up. That's the message in Revelation. Don't give up. There's a word that appears more in the book of Revelation than it does in, really in 
all of the New Testament outside of Revelation all put together. It's the root word where we get the word, our word, Nike. I'm sure there's somebody here sporting some Nikes this morning on campus. All right. It comes from the, the word, Nikaio is the original word. That's how you say the original word. And it's a verb that means, some of you are like, I know, just do it. That's not it. That's not what the original word means. It actually means conquer. It means overcome. It's actually a word that you're going to see, conquer, overcome. You're going to see it at the end of every one of the letters of the seven churches. You're going to see it mentioned there in these first three chapters of Revelation. And when you get to the last letter, which is in chapter 3, to the church of Laodicea, uh, there's an additional statement there at the end of that letter. And you see that word, Nikaio, appear again. But there it's attributed to Christ. It says in chapter 3, verse 21, it's after Jesus is talking about us being conquerors. It says, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, there's the key. The way that we conquer... The way that we persevere, the way we resist temptation, the way we stay focused and stay on course and keep on keeping on and fight the fight faithfully, the way we overcome is through the ultimate overcomer. That's Jesus Christ. Which means this, when we do fall, when we do drift, when we do fall into seasons of crippling discouragement, when we get swallowed up by those different things, when we do lose our way, you know what's happening? It's the, it's the fact that we've gotten our eyes off of, we've closed our spiritual ears to the words of, we've let our hearts drift away from our conqueror, Christ Jesus and His Word. The whole book of Revelation is meant to turn our hearts to Him. It's saying over and over and over again to these churches who, it, who felt like small, politically insignificant, weak. They, 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 they felt like that they were at times... It's swallowed up in the things of the world and the darkness and the wickedness and the evil and it can feel hopeless at times. The, the, the message in Revelation is this. It's saying over and over and over again to them and to us, hey, in light of what your overcomer has done, in light of who your overcomer is, in light of, of that he's overcome sin and overcome death and he is the victor, it takes us into the future. In light of the victory that is yours in Christ Jesus, never give up. Jesus is overcome, therefore live like Him and die like Him. That's what we walk away from Revelation. The heart's encouraged by the message. So, Jesus is going to have some words for churches here. These are going to be words for us as we're going to get into these letters. Words of encouragement, words of commendation, uh, words of... Words that are critical at times, kind of ouch type words that uh, stepped on their toes in a good way and it will step on our toes in a good way. Words that will really help us, instruction that will help us embrace the vision that he's given our our church, the mission that he's given our church uh, to embrace that more faithfully. But before we get to his words, we first get this incredible vision of the one who's speaking these words. Similar to the vision that we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, Isaiah's vision. Remember when we studied that and some of you were like, hey, we, didn't we just do this? Do we really need to get another vision of Jesus like this? Do we really need to spend a whole morning studying this? And I would say, absolutely. Because as we remember that so much of our Christian life and our, our, our church life, so much of that falls into place if we can just maintain a biblical vision of Jesus Christ. Which means we can't do this too much, what we're about to do. In fact, we're probably guilty, definitely guilty of not doing it enough. All right, so to stay the course, to remain on mission, 
to love God, to love people, to grow and to go as disciples, we must maintain a clear, lasting, a biblical picture of the resurrected, conquering, powerful, compassionate, majestic, merciful Christ in our hearts. That's what these churches will need, as we'll see. And that's what our hearts in our church needs as well. So that's where we're going to start this morning, getting this vision of Jesus. All right, stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining, was like the sun shining in full strength. We know what that's like in the last few days, don't we? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we need you this morning. We need your spirit to work in our hearts. Lord, we need a fresh vision of who you are. Lord, I pray that this morning through us studying these verses together, Lord, that you would help us to turn our eyes to Jesus in such a way that the things of this world would grow strangely dim and the things of you, the things that matter, will grow gloriously clear. So, Father, I pray you'd meet with us. pray we'd see you in this text clearly in a way that'll change us, that change us for eternity as disciples and as a group of disciples, your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with some uh, need-to-know information um, as we kind of prepare to walk through. We're just going to walk through the first three chapters of Revelation uh, through the summer. We're not going to study the entire book, but it's important to get some background context, understand some things about Revelation. This, is, this belongs in a category of books of the Bible or literature in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. Uh, this is actually, there's a lot of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, this is the only uh, New Testament book that we would categorize as apocalyptic literature. And I just want to make it real clear, everyday language, what does apocalyptic mean? All right, we could probably get a lot of different answers if we uh, asked you to raise hands and give answers this morning. But really, to boil it down, if we just made it real simple, here's when you hear the word apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic writings in Scripture, here's what it means. It just means getting the whole picture. Getting the whole picture. All right, so in other words, there's, there's more to life than, there's more to life, to, to this world, to this universe than, than what we see and touch and feel and can sense with our five senses, all right? And so what this book gives us is an eternal perspective, and it takes us into the future to see what is. God's not bound by time. So it takes us into the future to see what, it, and it is a victorious future for those who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior in the present. All right, so it's getting the whole picture. We see a piece of it, what Revelation does to encourage our hearts, to convict us, to sober us, 
is it gives us the whole picture. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what all apocalyptic literature is doing. In apocalyptic literature, you're going to find a lot of symbols. You're going to find figures. Uh, you're going to find different literary devices. It can get confusing. All right, so, uh, you know, it, it's important because we come to books like Revelation. We love to go to YouTube videos or go to extra biblical resources and try to discover what a lot of these things mean. But keep in mind, there are some really good extra biblical resources out there and good teaching on Revelation. But just keep something in mind that all the characters, all the symbols, all the events, all the numbers, all the colors that you read about in Revelation come up in other parts of Scripture. All right, so as you study Revelation... You're going to more accurately understand Revelation uh, as you're more intimately familiar with the whole of Scripture. All right, in the same way that you're not going to understand all of Scripture correctly if you don't understand Revelation, it ties up all the loose ends of Scripture. It's, a, it's an amazing book. But in order for you to correctly understand Revelation, you have to be intimately familiar with the Old and the New Testament. So keep that in mind as you study apocalyptic literature. The author of this book is the Apostle John. One of the disciples, uh, Mark chapter 1, one of the original that Jesus calls to follow him. He also pastored for a season of time at the church in Ephesus. We'll look at that letter in the next part in this series. Uh, this is written when he, later in his life, was banished to an island called Patmos. That was where the Roman government would uh, ship off people into political exiles, like a prison. I think Alcatraz, all right? And, there, and that's where he receives uh, this revelation, all right? This is an important note right here. This is the book of Revelation, not Revelations, all right? It's not plural, all right? This is the book of Revelation, specifically the revelation to John, all right? So it's not the revelation of John. That's the King James Version. That's a great translation, uh, but that's, where, that's one of the places where the King James Version, I believe, gets it wrong. At, on the title there, you'll see the King James Version says the revelation of John. It's actually a revelation to John because this is a message given to Jesus by the Father. Jesus gives the revelation to an angel. The angel on the island of Patmos uh, reveals it and gives it to John. John writes it down, this revelation to John from Jesus, delivered by an angel, writes it down, delivers it to these churches. All right, so this is a revelation to John. And again, he begins this with this incredible vision of Christ. Let's see how this happened. Verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I need to tell you all about something really cool that happened to me on a Sunday. That's why you don't need to miss a Sunday, right? You never know what's going to happen on a Sunday, the Lord's day. He's telling them, hey, on the Lord's day, I was caught up in the absolute conscience, manifest, powerful presence of Jesus Christ himself. And here is what I saw. And this portrait of Christ that he lays out right here, it's gonna, we're going to come back to it. Each of these letters kind of reaches back to it and brings it up. Because as you'll see, the thing that these churches need to do is to keep turning to this king. And so since that is what we'll keep coming back to, and this is the way that John starts, I just want us to, before we get to the church at Ephesus, before we visit that first church of the seven, I want to spend this first week just looking at two important features about the Lord that John sees, that we need to see, and that we need to believe and keep seeing and keep believing. Number one is this. He sees the Lord in the midst of the church. The first thing he sees that he makes note of is that he sees the Lord in the midst of the church. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. 
So again, this is apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of symbolic language right here, a lot of imagery. It says, in the midst of of lampstands. That's not too difficult to interpret right there. Why? Because in verse 20, it literally tells us that the seven lampstands there symbolize these seven literal real churches that are going to get this letter. And since another cool note is since there's seven, that's the number of completion or perfection. So the fact that there's seven lampstands, seven churches, means that this is, this, these churches are symbolic of, of, the whole of, the, of all the churches who will exist in all of the church age and all the history of the church. So this is applicable to every church. And what you'll find is there are issues you'll find in every church. The lampstand is also easy to understand the symbolism in. This is speaking to the witness, the gospel light that the church is called to shine in a dark world. So these, these seven lampstands, these are churches that really represent all churches throughout the history of the church. And in the midst of these lampstands, in the midst of the church on the earth, John sees what? One like a son of man. Now in Revelation, pay attention to that word like. Again, that, that signaling and showing us in apocalyptic literature like this, this is symbolic language. You see it all over Revelation. You see it a lot in this passage right here. Like a son of man, hairs on his head, like white wool, like snow, eyes like a flame of fire. Symbolic language. But just because it's, it's symbolic language, yes, but it's communicating real, absolute truths about the Lord. Truths describing his real power and his authority and his greatness and his glory. We're going to break some of that down in just a few moments. But what I don't want you to miss is this this comforting, maybe convicting, depending on where you're at spiritually this morning, picture being presented as John's describing this great and mighty Lord, this son of man he describes him as, like a son of man. It's the same description we see in Daniel chapter 7. This heavenly, majestic, powerful Messiah. Don't miss, before we break down uh, those different attributes and those different features, where he is. His location. Where does John see him? He sees him in the midst of the church. He sees him in the midst of these lampstands. He sees this powerful king comforting his church, supplying his church with power. Same true today. Protecting his church, protecting us, fighting for us, sustaining us, loving us, encouraging us, pursuing us, convicting us, correcting us, restoring us, transforming us, faithfully shepherding us. In other words, what John shows us is that Jesus, who is the Lord of the church, is not an absentee landlord. He's not like a supervisor who just drops by the work site every once in a while, but really doesn't know what's going on. He is in the midst of his church. This powerful king is intimately familiar with everything happening. As we'll see in the next passage that we'll look at when we look at the letter to the Ephesian Christians in the church at Ephesus, it actually didn't just say he's in the midst of the lampstands. He says he's walking in the midst of the lampstands. Church, this is why we gather and connect. We talked about the vision, that we, the strategy within our vision. The, part, the gross side of that is that we're going to be committed to gather and connect. This, is, this helps us remember why we gather and connect. This helps you remember why you live life entangled with the community of faith because that's where Jesus is. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of His church. Now that can be a sobering, jarring reminder for you if you ain't living right. But this picture is also meant to encourage the faithful. People serving Jesus. People serving in the life of a church, but who grow weary. Not that you're tired of the work, but you grow tired in the work. Ever been there? Are you there this morning? This is, this is a comforting picture. 
that comforted the heart of comforted the heart of John and can comfort your heart, your heart this morning in your service unto the Lord. You need to remember, hey, Jesus hadn't left you. He's an ever-present, never-absent, always-working good shepherd. He is with you. He, he knows what you're going through. He hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't stopped working. He's right up in the middle of His lampstands. He's the one who stands in the middle of the church. It's an incredibly comforting picture of Christ that shouts to believers who are in the world, who can get weary at times, who can get discouraged at times, don't give up. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. What an incredible encounter. Can we just stop and think about that? John gets caught up in the the real manifest presence of the Lord. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Do you think that's an encounter that John needed? Remember, he's not on the island of Patmos in paradise on vacation. He's in prison. Probably very weary. But how awesome and encouraging it was for him to encounter the unveiled, glorified, exalted, compassionate Lord. And to see what he saw. Right, it's a big moment. That's a big moment. All right? It definitely was not a letdown. All right? Definitely was not a letdown. Have you ever encountered someone who you looked up to, that you revered, you're a fan of, and you got too close to them and realized, and you were let down a little bit by the real person that you saw and that you experienced? Am I the only one? You ever had an experience like that? I remember when I was little, man, I was a professional wrestling fan. All right? Still kind of am a little bit. All right? But when I, I'm talking about the WWF days. You know what I'm talking about? The good old days. Not WWE, WWF. And I remember when I was little, man, my, my dad's a Baptist pastor. I've, I've always been in a church, and my dad, I've only known him as a Southern Baptist preacher, but man, he loved wrestling too. He passed it on to us. We'd watch wrestling on TV on Saturday mornings throughout the week. Uh, he'd take us to go see wrestling matches, like some of the ones that would like be in like a high school gym, like not even like the professional ones, the ones where nobody knew the guys who were wrestling. We just went and watched it, and then the big dogs came to town. You know what I'm saying? My dad would take us when we were little. I remember one time uh, in particular, he took us down to the Jacksonville Coliseum. Y'all remember the Jacksonville Coliseum? WWF was in town. I was probably nine or ten years old, and man, I was, get, I was, I was hyped up. You know why? I was going to get to see my hero, the great Hulk Hogan. You know what I'm saying? So we get into the Coliseum, man. It's ready for the main event. I got my little Hulkamaniac t-shirt on. And all of a sudden, it's time, man. It's, it's getting to the end. We know it's coming. And all of a sudden, his theme song comes. I am a real American. My little nine-year-old self is all hyped up. I'm pretending like I'm tearing my shirt off like Hulk Hogan. I'm pretending I'm listening to the crowd like Hulk Hogan. He ends with his trademark move, leg drop. Body slammed in the leg drop. Always in that order. And this isn't a serious, y'all can loosen up, this isn't a real serious story. <laughs> and I remember leaving, that's my hero. I remember, like, years later, I, you know, in elementary school, my dad getting us the VHS tape from the video store of WrestleMania Six when he wrestled the Ultimate Warrior. And my heart broke as I saw the Ultimate Warrior be Hulk Hogan, man. I was like, no, but I remained a Hulkamaniac, man. I was a fan. Fast forward to my senior year of high school. My senior year of high school, I was in Tampa visiting my, uh, my uncle. We were there. The Super Bowl was there. We were doing some of the festivities and stuff, getting some autographs. And we were in a store, and I turn around. It's Hulk Hogan. It's him in the flesh, right? I turned into a nine-year-old kid again. I am a real. It was him. And I had a disposable camera. That's how long ago this was. And I told my brother Joe, I was like, we got to go. We got to go talk to him. Nobody was around. 
Nobody's around. I walked up to him. I said, oh, I was just going to say, can I get my picture? He said, and he shook, shook me away. And he kept me, walked right past me. My Hulkamaniac heart broke. I got, I'm counseling and stuff. I've gotten past that. I'm good. You know, as, as time went by, I understood. He may have had a bad day. A, you know, kind of still young, not understanding some of that stuff. But have you ever had that moment where you have expectations, high hopes, and you're let down? That's a good lesson just not to put people on pedestals. But just to imagine for a moment how high the expectations are, just in that millisecond of, 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 of John understanding what's happening. You know, he got to see Jesus' face light up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but this is a whole other level. He's getting to step into the VIP behind the scenes, the unveiled vision of Jesus. A peek into who he truly is. He gets to see who Jesus truly is behind the scenes and he is not let down. John living in in a world that's dark and wicked and feels overwhelming. He sees the Lord and he's not let down. His heart is filled with peace and comfort as he sees Jesus in control. Moving among the lampstands. Moving amongst the churches on earth with care and attentiveness in the midst of His church, working among His church, committed to the church. And the same Lord that He saw in the midst of the lampstands then has not left the lampstands. He's working. Today, He's working. He's faithful to us. Hey, He's faithful to us even when we fail Him. If that's not a word for the church in America right now, then I don't know what is. Pursuing us, convicting us, correcting us, calling us to repentance. A present and good shepherd who will never give up on his bride. Which is a reminder for you to never give up on his bride. This is where we experience Christ most fully. In the life of a community of faith. Because Jesus is walking among the lampstands. And this is a truth that gets more encouraging or more sobering depending on where you're at spiritually. As he begins to unpack The glory of all that he saw. As more details emerge about this king that he saw in the midst of the lampstand. Which is point number two. He sees the Lord in all of his glory. Verses 13 through 16. John describes different features that stand out to him about this king. He describes him wearing a long robe that speaks of his majesty. The golden sash speaks of his royal priesthood. Which means he doesn't just walk among us, he intercedes for us. Verse 14 says, the hairs of his head were like white wool, like snow. This is imagery that that we can also see in Daniel 7, right? Describing the ancient of days, and he's applying it here to Jesus, meaning our coming king isn't just with us. He isn't just our great high priest who intercedes for us. He's infinitely wise. The Bible, different than our culture does, associates age with wisdom. His hair is like white wool. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. What is this doing? This is all driving home the truth of his omniscience. He's an all-knowing God. He can see through all deceit. He can see through all hypocrisy. His gaze covers every square inch of the universe and the hearts of every person in existence. You can't get anything past him. This is the Lord who's in our midst. This is the Lord who is alive and who is at work. It says his, he has feet like burnished bronze. This speaks of his victory. Bronze was heavy. This is, a, this is burning bronze, which means he's crushing and moving through anything that stands in his path. It says his voice was the, like the roar of many waters. Imagine standing at the base of Niagara Falls. 
This is fear-inducing speech. Here's the big takeaway in all of this imagery, right? That this king possesses unstoppable power. It says he holds the seven stars. Who are the stars? We'll get to this later on in the series. I believe it's talking about representative angels. One angel per church right here. There's different views. That's where I land. But don't miss the main point. Don't miss the forest for the trees. That Jesus is in full control of his church. That's what that's meant to communicate. That this powerful king that is being described, he holds the church secure. Nothing will will take it out of his hands. He's the true authority of the church. He is the head of the church. He possesses it. He protects it. He's the Lord over it. It is his church and nothing will ever change that. In verse 16 it says, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is judgment language. This is a picture of future judgment. And it's referring specifically to, uh, referring to the power of his words. That will be spoken on the day of judgment. The powerful words that he used to create the earth, the planets, solar systems, galaxies, all of the universe. The the powerful words that, that Jesus used, just words to calm storms. One day, his word will slay every enemy of the cross. Just his words. That's how powerful he is. It says his face was like the shining... The sun shining in full strength. This is speaking of his brilliance, of his holiness, of his majesty. This is the king that John sees in the midst of the lampstand, which is this. That's either a really wonderful picture for some of us this morning, or that's a terrifying picture for some of us this morning. Because if you are an enemy of this king, if you are not a friend of this God, this is a horrific reality for you. Because one day the Bible shows us, right? Whole picture, Revelation shows us that one day this king will come and he will judge the quick and the dead. He is a just judge. He will deal with all of sin. He will pour wrath out on all sin, even sin in your life if you don't trust in Jesus and in what Jesus did on the cross to deal with your sin for you. If you haven't received the gospel, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sin is not dealt with. It's still stuck to you. You can't get rid of it. And if that's where you stand, then this picture of this powerful king who will one day come and deal with sin is a terrifying picture for you, but it doesn't have to stay that way. You can trust in Jesus. You can trust in Jesus this morning. You can believe what Jesus did on the cross counted for you. You can admit your sin, repent of your sin, receive the gospel, believe that Jesus came and died in your place and rose from the dead, receive salvation from Him. And this great exchange can take place where He'll take your sin and you'll take His righteousness. You'll experience forgiveness. You'll experience new life. And this terrifying picture will turn into a beautiful picture. A wonderful picture. Because if you know Christ this morning, this is a wonderful picture. You need to be reminded this morning that this is a wonderful picture for you. This is an encouraging picture for you. Why? Because watch this, verse 17. It says, when I saw him, and you put yourself there, and if you saw him too, this would be your story as well. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. You see that pattern in Scripture. You see it with Ezekiel. You see it with Isaiah. You see it with uh, with. Peter in Luke chapter 5 when he's in the boat when Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature. Anytime somebody gets a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, in that moment, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 wasn't like, oh, cool. High five, Jesus. That's awesome. No, it's on your face. 
On his face, John falls. But notice what is next here for friends of this king. That with Jesus, you don't, not only comes his holiness, you also get his mercy and his grace and his love. We experience that in a relationship with him. We know that John says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Think about that. The sovereign, almighty king who will slay all of his enemies with just his words reaches out his hands, hand not to crush John, not to crush you if you're in Christ, but to comfort you, to say, fear not. This church, this church in the first century needed this. And I want you to think about this this morning. If, the one, if you're in Christ, I want you to lean in and think about this. If the one, who ev- the one who everything and everyone was created to worship and serve, the one who rules over every molecule in existence, if he is the one who says to you in Christ, don't be afraid, what is there to be afraid of? What is there to be fearful of? If the only, if the only one who's worth being scared of and fearful of says don't be afraid, what is there to be scared of? I pray that your heart would be gripped afresh by this this morning. That you'd be filled up afresh with His peace and with His comfort. What, literally, what in the world are you scared of this morning? What in the world has you anxious this morning? What in the world are you worried about this morning? What are you afraid of? What does Jesus say? The eternal, majestic King who has conquered all of our enemies who's conquered death itself. He says, fear not. He goes on to say, fear not. I'm the first and I'm the last. Fear not. I'm the living one. Fear not. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Fear not. How can whatever has a grip on your heart this morning, believer, how can whatever that is, anxiousness, worry, whatever it is that has a grip on your heart, not be impacted If the victorious king who conquered the grave, who rose again, who was your personal savior, how can that not be impacted if this morning you'll look afresh to him and realize he places his his nail-pierced hand on your shoulder and says, do not be afraid, fear not. Oh man, this early church needed this. You know why? You want to talk about persecution. And there are people in the world right now who are facing real fierce persecution. And we need to pray for them. You want to talk about persecution, though? You want to talk about something that would shake you? These early believers in the first century, they're literally watching their brothers and sisters in Christ being dragged into arenas, being fed to lions as entertainment because of their refusal to bow their knee solely to the emperor. So naturally, we're human. They believe in Jesus, man, but they're shaken. They're fearful. They're anxious. They're worried. But what they desperately need and what you need with whatever grips your heart this morning is for their heart to turn back to Christ who defeated death, who holds the keys to it, who rose again. They needed their heart. They needed the Holy Spirit to use this vision to to remind them why they can be bold in the face of persecution. Look at Jesus. This is why y'all can be bold. This is why some of them were. This is why we have documented and even extra biblical history of first century believers walking to their death into an arena, into a coliseum, singing hymns with smiles on their face. Why? Because they kept their eyes on Jesus. 
So he's reminding them through this letter, this is why you can be, this is why y'all can be bold in the face of persecution. What are they going to do, kill you? Jesus says, I got that. I got the keys to that. I took care of that. Hey, this is a word for you today. You stay alive. You remain alive on this planet. He's got you. You're secure. You're safe. You die. He's got you. You're good. You're safe. Some of us here this morning, we need to turn our hearts to Him again. Gripped with discouragement or worry or maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're in sin. Maybe you're off track. Maybe you're spiritually apathetic right now. See, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Believer. For some of you, it's not that you don't believe these things that have been described about Jesus. There's a level of belief in your heart. It just means you hadn't taken a good look at Him in a while. You've gotten distracted. You've gotten your eyes off of His power or His mercy or His goodness or His holiness or His love or His faithfulness. Oh, our hearts are so prone to wander. And sometimes it's just as simple as you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. You ever get distracted? I told y'all a few weeks ago that that may be my last uh, story about my son Max. Well, I lied. That's not going to be my last story. <clears throat> So my sons play baseball, and Max is seven, and he plays baseball, and they love it. And had a good conversation with his coach the other night after his practice. Um, and his coach said, hey, and I, and I loved this. It, it really uh, appreciated him taking the time to just share a little bit of encouragement to me. He said, hey, Max, man, he's doing good. He's progressed this season. You know, his, his bat's great. He's hitting the ball well. He said his glove needs a little work. He said uh, he's throwing the ball real well. So he's doing good. Here's the main thing that Max needs to work on. Max needs to work on focusing. <laughs> Max needs to work on not getting distracted. Max needs to work on out in the outfield, not talking to the people behind the fence or watching the airplanes. Or... Max just needs to work on... He's saying, I'm telling you, man, if he'll just focus, it'll really help him. He can, he can turn into a good little ball player if he'll just listen and not get distracted and focus. And so that was encouraging. So I got into the trucks, me and Max on our way home, pulled out of the uh, ballpark, and I said, Max, he said, yeah, Daddy, I said, your coach gave me some encouragement, man. Really? What did he say? He said, well, he said, and, and I just, I laid it out. I said, he said that your, your bat's doing good. He said, your glove needs a little help. I said, I'll help you with that. He said, you're throwing the ball real well. And I, and I just, I, I was really proud of myself. I laid out in a very, at a seven-year-old level, very eloquently, a, a, a lecture for, for him to understand. I said, you, you need to listen better. Yeah, he said, you get way too easily distracted. If you can just start listening, if you can start focusing better. He said, man, he said, you, you can become a good little ball player if you'll just listen, if you'll just focus. I said, does that make sense? It's a little voice from the back seat. I said, can we go to Dairy Queen? I said, that's what the coat... Never mind. All right. Never mind. We'll work on that later. I share that story. Listen, Max is kind of bad at paying attention to his dad these days. We're going to work on that. As a believer, listen. As a believer, as a disciple of Christ, in the little blip of a life that you have available to you to live on this planet, it'll come and it'll go. A vapor. We cannot afford to be bad at paying attention to Jesus. Amen. We cannot afford to be bad at focusing on Christ, at maintaining a fresh biblical vision of who He is and what He's done in our hearts, maintaining that. 
How many problems in our personal life, how many problems in our little lampstand that God's given us right here called Sumer Drive Baptist Church would disappear if we simply became more focused and on maintaining a correct biblical vision of our King, a correct view of His power, a correct view of His presence, a correct view of His grace and His love and His holiness, His compassion, His heart for the lost. I'll tell you what, I don't know exactly what would happen, but I, I, I think I can guarantee a few things. If we could keep our gaze on Jesus Christ, I guarantee there'd be a lot less complaining because we'd be reminded that it's not about us, it's about Him, it's His church. There'd be a lot more powerful worship experience because we would see Him more clearly being worthy of worship. There would be more faithful prayers lifted up. Hey, there'd be a lot more holiness. There'd be less compromise and there'd be more conquering sin. There'd be more boldness, compassion, more neighborly love, more encouragement. Hey, there'd just be more Jesus. There'd be more less of us and more of him. There'd be more living on mission for his glory. The glory of this exalted, powerful, mighty. Do you see him this morning? Do you see the glorious exalted king fix your eyes on him fix your eyes on him in such a way that the things of this world grow strangely dim and the things of God the things that he cares about the things that don't matter to him 150 years from now become gloriously clear do you see him the glory of this exalted king who has freed us by his blood who has filled us with his spirit who intercedes for us who walks with us who strengthens us who crushes our enemies under his feet and will one day come again we cannot afford to not keep our eyes on him that is how we overcome that is how you overcome as an individual disciple that is how we overcome as a fellowship of believers by seeing him By being united to Him and continuing to see Him, we are faithful to the end. Hey, there's a lot to be said. God's got a lot of things to say to these churches that He's going to say to us. A lot of instruction. Encouraging words, correcting words. I think it's going to be words that will help us more passionately and faithfully embrace the vision that He's given our church. But let's begin this series doing what all of these other churches will be instructed to do. That'll help them with whatever their issue is. Sin issues, discouragement issues, whatever it may be. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And I just want to encourage you. So we've heard the word this morning in these next few moments to intentionally focus your gaze this morning on the glorious crucified risen Lord who came and died and rose again so that we can live for him forever. Just a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. It's one of the ordinances that we observe here in our church before we do that this morning I I do want to extend an invitation to some of you because this morning the gospel may be very clear to you and you're ready to receive Christ you're ready to repent of your sin and I would say hey you don't have to you don't have to wait that can happen right where you're seated
a way it was explained to me before that helped it make sense is it's almost as if the nail-scarred hand of Jesus is right down here in this room in front of you. And if you will believe that your sin is separating you from a holy God, if you will believe that you don't have what it takes to remove the sin stain on your heart, then you will throw your hands up and believe that your only hope is to believe in Jesus Christ, that he lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserve to die, and conquered the grave that you can't conquer. You're headed there. You can't conquer it. You don't want to go into that without your sin being dealt with. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? It's about, not about what you need to do. It's about what Christ has done. Believing that. Trusting in that for the forgiveness of your sins. Take him by his hand this morning. In your heart, receive him as Lord. And be saved. And if that's where you're at this morning, we want to talk to you before you leave. Give you some resources that can help you take these first steps towards following Jesus Christ.